We are going to be in Romans. It has been a few weeks since we were in Romans, and we are jumping back into a series that we started about halfway through last year. We are going verse by verse through the book of Romans. At Park, we like to preach through entire books of the Bible, and we are starting Romans chapter 5 today. Romans chapter 5. So if you got your Bibles, let's see, it's going to be on page 942 of the House Bibles or uh, about the sixth book of your New Testament if you're in your app, Romans chapter 5. There isn't much in life that you can be certain about, is there? I mean, if you really think about it, what, what are the things that you could genuinely be certain about, that you can just say with a full stamp of certainty, I know this is gonna happen tomorrow? In fact, it's one of the reasons Jesus kind of commanded his followers to not boast about tomorrow is because the only person who knows what tomorrow is gonna happen is God. For us, we should be very cautious to be making very set in stone long-term plans. Jesus says, today is enough worry for you today. Let me worry about tomorrow. You just have faith in me today. None of us know what's going to happen when we walk out this door. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The Bears thought that they were going to have an incredible season, and then Hakeem Hicks got hit in one of the first few games of the season, and that went out the window. But wouldn't it be interesting if you could have certainty? I mean, wouldn't that change you? Wouldn't, if, if you knew, if you were certain and you just knew so-and-so was going to happen in the future, wouldn't that actually change something about you? I mean, if you knew the price of gold was going up 300% tomorrow, don't you think you'd purchase some gold today? Wouldn't, wouldn't you make an investment today if you were certain of what was going to happen in the future? Here's the deal. Our faith has certain certainties to it. Absolutely, there is faith, but Jesus has also made, for those who have faith, certain declarations of what will happen in the future that ought to drive your action today. And one of the things I want to shape in us today is this. Our faith was never intended to be a private faith. This is really important. There's a word called dualism, as in dual, dualism. Dualism is this idea, and it's a lie. I don't know how it crept into the church, but it crept into the church in the last hundred years. Dualism is this myth that what Christian faith ultimately is, is I have my Christian faith, and it's great as long as I'm private about it. As long as I have my Christian faith, I can do it in this room. Whatever we want to do is fine in this room. Whatever I want to do in my house is fine with me. But when I enter into the public sphere, when I enter into my vocation, when I enter into places where other non-believers might be, that's not necessarily a place where I necessarily want to have too much to say about my faith. Really, faith is for the private sphere. And you will be hard-pressed to find anything like that in the Bible. Our faith is to consume all of us, our entire being. We are to be single-minded in the way we live our life. We're to be single-minded in how we bring our faith to have weight and bearing in every aspect of our life, everything. There's nothing in all of God's creation that Jesus does not have the stamp over that he does not say mine. It's all his. And as followers of Christ, we bring that holistically into every aspect of our life. Now, here's, here's what I think happens. I think one of the reasons we don't bring our faith out of our prayer closet and we keep it so private and don't, and I'm not just talking about evangelism, I'm talking about having all of your life be a reflection of your faith. One of the reasons we don't do that is because I believe we are not confident about the promises of Jesus. I think we've heard the promises. I think we've maybe heard a preacher say them once or twice or read them in the scriptures. But I don't know if we have a confidence about them. 
Because the things we're confident about, we actually take action on. We do something about it. But because we're not confident, then we don't necessarily take action on it, and we kind of live this waffling life, kind of going through life not quite certain, not quite sure how I ought to do this thing, rather than being single-minded the way Jesus declared we ought to be. Today, we're jumping back into our study of the book of Romans. Incredible book. If you've been with us so far, it has been a journey already. Romans... You know, one of the problems with going verse by verse through the Bible is that you have to preach on some really hard stuff because the Bible talks about every part of life. And we've covered some hard ground already, very difficult ground, but great to dig into. And today, we're studying a particular doctrine in in Christian history that has been known as the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Other church theologians have called it the preservation of the saints. Here's what it means. This is what the perseverance of the saints means. Once Jesus has gotten a hold of your life and done a radical transformation in you, there is no way you can ever lose it. There is nothing anyone can do to you, nothing you can ever do to you, nothing that ever could happen in your life that can take away the work of Jesus in your life. Once you've been saved, you will always be saved. Once you've been changed by Christ, you will always remain changed by Christ. In the church, we oftentimes call that once saved, always saved, if you've heard that. People ask the question, can you lose your salvation? And with a firm stamp, the Bible says, no, it's impossible. Today, we're going to talk about that certainty of our faith and the certainty that God is preparing for every follower of Christ an eternal dwelling with Him that begins in this life in the relationship we have with Him but extends throughout eternity. And I want to give you from this text four reasons why you can have a certainty about that in your life if you're a follower of Christ. Four reasons why you can have a certainty that it is impossible for you to lose your faith as a genuine follower of Christ. Here's the first one, reason number one. The Christian certainty is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on how strong or mighty I am, but on God's grace. Romans chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, pause. This is how I like to preach, one word at a time, one phrase at a time. Whenever you see a therefore, You've got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? So a little Bible study trick for you. If you see the word therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore is a linking word. It connects one previous idea to the next idea. So he's, he's connecting all of what he said previously. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now what is the therefore, therefore? He's reminding us of the message of all of Romans 1 1 through 4. There were a lot of theological points we made in Romans 1, 1 to 4. Romans 1 through 4. But the big picture is that we've been justified by faith. Now what does that mean? If you've been with us, you know what that means is that it is impossible for human beings to be made right with God by any religious duty or moral obligation. That's impossible. The human condition that every human, every human being, no matter what religion you are, no matter what your upbringing was, no matter what your job is, no matter how much money you make or don't make, every human being carries the exact same human condition with them. 
And that condition is that we are heart, at our heart depth level, we are broken before a holy God and we are sinners. We break God's commands. Our ultimate aim for our life is not to rejoice in the, in the glory of God, but is to actually build our own kingdom and is to have a life our own way and make our own rules as we go along. And we think that's what's best for us. That's called sin. And God says that the nature of the sin that you bring into a room like this is so great that no amount of religious duty could ever save you from that. You're separated from God. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've been justified freely by grace. We're not made right with God by works. We're not made right with God by coming to church. We're made right with God because one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, shed his blood on the cross. It's by grace. Unmerited, undeserved, I can't do anything to earn it. Grace that's been given to us. And we receive that by faith. And then he says, because of that, you have peace with God. That's really interesting language. You have peace with God. What's this peace that he's talking about? Well, I think it's twofold. I think this peace that Paul is describing is both an, an upward peace and an inner peace. It's an upward peace. If God's justified you by sending his son to die on the cross for you as a result of your sin, if he's made you right with him, well, then you have a peace with God. That ultimately, just a reminder for you, that is the primary aim of all creation. It's the primary aim of every human being is to find ultimate peace with God. And God says, you were rebels to him. You were traitors to the king's name. You, you were not obedient to his kingdom. You wanted your own kingdom, just like Satan before you. You wanted to do it your own way, and that put you at war with God. But God's done something to raise the peace flag. He's made a way that despite our treachery, he has waved the peace flag and said, you can have peace with God. Now that upward peace with God then works itself down into the human heart and develops an inner peace as followers of Christ. This is one of the peculiar marks of a Christian in the world we live in today. The world around us is full of anxiety and stress. The world around us is full of uncertainty about the future, and they bring incredible amounts of stress. There are entire industries, billion-dollar industries, in the United States to help get rid of your stress. That's the world that we live in. The peace that Christ offers, once you know that you've been made right with God, what happens is something very real happens, an experience happens in the human heart that develops an ongoing presence of God in your life that is not just ethereal or poetic, but is real, is certain, and many of you have experienced it and are experiencing it now. He develops an inner peace within you. The scriptures call it a peace that surpasses all understanding. What that means is that non-followers of Christ don't get it. They just don't get it. But when you know that God's made you right, there is a peace that is steady, that is certain in your life, no matter what comes your way. And then look at what he says. He says, because of that peace in your life, Christian, and let me pause actually before I go any further. I'm convinced that one of Satan's greatest tricks he's been trying to pull on this community, I've been your pastor for six years now, what I've seen in this community is that he wants to rob you of that peace. And, and we oftentimes lose track of the peace that God's given us. 
and we allow stress and anxiety just like the rest of the world experience. I'm not saying that there's not stress in this life. There is. I experienced that too. I'm not saying there's not anxiety. But what I'm saying is that when you cling to the promises of God and you allow the Holy Spirit to work a very real presence in your life by being plugged into God and his desire for your life, there is an experience peace to be had. And I'm convinced that one of the things Satan has just been hitting us with has been robbing you of that peace. You've got to cling to the promises. It's there to be had. It's God's promise to you. He says we've obtained access. Now that language is very Old Testament Jewish. If you were with us when we studied the book of Exodus, you remember that in the Old Testament, God's people, the Jewish people, had a temple and there was an area in it that was forbidden. It was called the most holy place. Nobody had access to that place. Nobody could go there except for one priest once a year. It was the place where God's presence was among men. As a result of Christ, we have access into the presence of God. If there was a a very conservative Jewish person here right now, they would say that's impossible. You, You can't enter into that most holy place. But Christ has made a way for regular people like us through his blood to enter into the presence of God in which we stand. That language is so critical. We enter through the peace of God into his presence in which we stand. That language is this. It's imagine walking knee deep into wet concrete and then letting it dry. You're standing, immovable, unshakable. It can't be changed. You're standing in the grace of God. The, the opposite of this would be like waiting. This is, if you listen to some preachers preach this, they actually are, they preach that you can lose your salvation. And what they say is, it's ultimately dependent on you. And the reason they're teaching is because they haven't read with clarity what the scriptures say. It's grace is something you wade in and out of. You kind of swim in, and as long as you're strong enough, as long as you've got enough faith, as long as you keep doing the right things, then you can stay in God's grace. But be careful, because if you lose strength one day, if you have a bad year, a bad decade, a bad season, and you start swimming out of that grace, well, you're out of God's grace then. That's not the Christian story. You stand concreted into a place of God's grace, and it's not dependent on your strength. Yes, there is things that God desires of you. Yes, we are called to follow his law joyfully, but that is not what makes you have right standing with God. It's by grace through faith we're saved. Listen to how Arthur Pink says it. I love this. It is utterly and absolutely impossible that the sentence of the divine judge should ever be revoked or reversed. Sooner shall the lightnings of omnipotence shiver the rock of ages. Don't you love these old preachers? Sooner should the lightnings of omnipotence shiver the rock of ages than those sheltering in him again be brought under condemnation. Here's what it says. It's dependent on God. If you have genuinely and authentically put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will see you through the end despite your weakness. Isn't that good news? Reason number one, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. Reason number two, our certainty cannot be taken or tarnished by suffering. Now, this is a very interesting point. If you think of the world around us, if you think of the life of a a non-believer, a life of a a non-believer also has hope. There is something that every person, no matter what religion you're from, is building hope towards. It's, what we, it's why we're motivated to do anything in life. We've got a vision of our future that we're trying to build towards. Whatever that vision might be. And people manufacture any number of visions. 
right? And there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves to have in your hope for what your future might be. The problem with man-made visions for your life and man-made hopes for your life is that suffering can remove it. And the reality of the world we live in is that it's full of suffering. The Bible's not surprised by that. It actually diagnoses why that's the case. But the point I'm making is that if you are a non-follower of Christ and you have built your hope on something in this world, on something in this life, ultimately suffering will and can take it away from you. If your hope is in your career and suddenly something happens to you that you're not able to do your career, your hope's lost. If your hope is in a person and that person is suddenly taken away from you, your hope is lost, your meaning is lost. And this is what all the great philosophers, all the great atheist philosophers, all agree on this statement. They all agree at this level that ultimately, if we find our hope and our meaning in this life, in the things of this life, then as soon as suffering enters in, it's gone. You're crippled. There's nothing you can do. Your hope's been taken from you. But that's not the Christian story. See, I imagine, again, I'm kind of doing some dialogue today with someone who's not a follower of Christ. I imagine a non-follower of Christ saying to a Christian something like this, all right, pastor, I hear what you just said. God loves you so much, right? And he secured this place in heaven for you and he secured your justification with him. Why is it that you Christians experience so much suffering? I mean, does that even make sense? You seem to experience all the same suffering I experience. You get the same cancer I get. You lose the same jobs I lose. You have all the same suffering to some degree. So how can it be true that your God loves you in such a special way? And then we pick up Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, and we read the answer. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering, here it is, produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon called that verse right there the chain of grace. Did you notice how there were Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. It's a chain of grace. He says this, when you get a hold of one golden link of the blessed chain of grace, it pulls up another, and then another, and then another. Suffering for a Christian, while the events and circumstances of our suffering might be very similar to much of the rest of the world, in fact, Christians oftentimes suffer, depending on what part of the world you're in, in very unique and particular and heightened ways, they're different in the way they're experienced. And he has this chain. First is suffering. The first link is this. A Christian picks up suffering. And I know, by the way, I'm your pastor, I meet with many of you all the time, I know that there's suffering in this room right now at a very great degree. And so I'm not talking about anything lightly. I'm actually telling you the hope you have in the midst of it right now. So please hold on with me. Suffering is real. You pick that up. Here's the lot that God's given you for this season. It's suffering. The Bible's not confused. The Bible doesn't reject it. Jesus said that we would get to heaven through many sufferings. That's actually the language he used. And so we're not surprised by suffering. Now, a Christian picks up this suffering, and the next link in the chain is endurance. What does that mean? The word endurance in the Greek, what it means is patience or constancy. Suffering develops in the life of a follower of Christ an endurance and a constancy. It's almost like the language we might use for a workout, right? When you're, when you're working out, you're, you get on a treadmill, you're, you're, you're training your lungs to be able to go longer distance. You're training your joints and your bones to be able to actually withstand longer and more difficult workouts. 
In the same way, for a follower of Christ, when you cling to the promises of God through your suffering, what happens is that it's like a workout for the soul. In fact, in other places in Scripture, that's exactly the language that's used. And and we're reminded not to waste our moments of suffering for that reason. Because in our suffering, God is training our spiritual lungs. He's training our spiritual blood. He's actually forming in you endurance to go through the next trial even stronger. It's, it's almost, you know, when you run on the treadmill, you do it for a little bit, and then the next time you get back on the treadmill, you can go a little further. For the Christian, as you experience suffering, you're developing endurance so that when that trial passes, God has withstood his promise to you with such certainty that now the next time suffering comes your way, whatever it is, you have a posture about it that says, I've, I've been here before. And I remember how faithful God was. I remember he showed up in surprising ways. I remember his word was true. I remember God's people surrounded me with love and cared for me in a way that I needed and got me through it. And, and I'm strengthened. I'm ready for this. And your blood doesn't quite get going so fast the next time you go through suffering. Your adrenaline doesn't kick in quite so quickly because you're steady. Remember that peace? The peace has been formed in you in a powerful way. But he's not done. Suffering produces endurance, and the next one is character. As that endurance begins to form in you as a follower of Christ, you develop Christian godly character. The word character, what it means is patience or constancy. It's, it's kind of, you've been through the storm a few times, and you've got something of depth and power to say to the world about the God you serve. Now, I'm not talking about that kind of Clint Eastwood chiseled kind of walk through, you know, those old Western films, as in he's this kind of strengthened person. I'm not talking about earthly character. I'm talking about spiritual character. That person that every true follower of Christ actually wants to be. You know, you ever been around someone who's got true godly character? There's a gravity to them, isn't there? You ever get around someone that the Word of God's been formed so powerfully and tangibly and real and their hope is so expectant and the way they speak and the humility and the patience they have and there's a character about them that just makes you want to be quiet in their presence? You know that? That's what you ought to be aiming for. And, and, and suffering produces that. You see that? As you go through the trials of this life, clinging to the Word of God, it builds endurance which ultimately forms character in you. And that builds hope. When that character has been formed, it reestablishes. That's what spiritual character is, the discipline of knowing that your hope is withstanding whatever comes your way. Whatever evil, whatever force comes your way, hope that does not put us to shame is knowing that your hope is true is knowing that you're standing on solid ground as a Christian and you're not a fool to believe it. I'll never forget a time I was in seminary underneath one of my favorite professors. And I, I like the academic side of my faith. I like digging into all the nuances and the apologetics and all, all that kind of stuff. And I particularly love this one professor. And one day we went into class and the professor said, hey, I, uh, I've canceled the class today because a friend of mine's in town. It's this older woman very old woman. And he said, I've canceled the whole lesson for today. I'm just going to have her share her story with you. 
And I remember when he first said it, I was kind of bummed, to be honest with you, because I like learning things. I, like, I, I wanted some good seminary stuff to think about. And then she started talking. And I very quickly realized that this old woman had more character in her pinky than I had in my whole body. She started telling about her life of following Christ, about her marriage, about moving overseas to be a missionary and the hardships that were on the mission field. For a whole decade, she was in one particular mission field and there wasn't much fruit in it, but she was faithful and she knew God had called them there and they began to see some work take place, but then something happened with the country and they were kicked out of the country and it was like all hope was lost. And then they came back home and they felt defeated for a whole season of their life, but they stayed true. They went through it. I think at some point her husband actually passed away, but she went back to the mission field. And again, she went to a new mission field and had to learn a new language. But, but she was faithful and she kept clinging to the promises. Very little fruit for a long season. But then eventually she saw the leaders of the community come to faith in Christ. She was telling this story i just watching a woman of such character. You know, we ought to aim. This is a young church. We have, diff- we have a ver- variety of generations in this church. And if you're an older person in this church, I'm so glad you were with us. We, we need you. On the whole, I'm a young pastor. And we're a young church in general. You ought to aim to have that kind of character about you, church. That ought to be something you're shooting for. That you one day would have such character about you that when people sit down and they hear you tell your story of your life, of what God's done in your life, through all the great moments and through all the dry moments and through all the challenging moments, that everyone shuts up and listens because there's a gravity to the character that you have. That is formed through suffering. Now, if you're in a season of suffering right now, I want you to know that's what God's forming in you. He's not surprised by your suffering. He's the sovereign God over it all. You pick up that sovereign chain of grace and you keep holding it and you look to what God is forming. Don't waste your trial. Suffering cannot take away the Christian's hope. Third reason. This is why you can have a confidence about the hope. The Spirit bears witness to our certainty from within us. Okay. The Spirit bears witness to our certainty from within us. The opposite of that is this. You know you can have a hope because a preacher once told you that. Right? That's the truth coming to you from the outside. That's someone else telling it to you. But that's actually not the basis of the Christian's hope. Yes, we have the word. It comes to us. We hear we heard sermons. We have the word of God ourselves. We read it. We, we have an intake of the word of God. But ultimately for a Christian, that's not what certifies it for you. It's the spirit of God inside of you welling up inside the truth of God's revealed word. Verse 5. Let's read it. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Here's the picture you should have. Niagara Falls. When you think of God's love pouring into your heart, think of Niagara Falls. All the power of God's love just forcing its way into your life, overwhelming you. I want you to think of God's love for a moment. If you don't know about God's love, I want you to pick up the Bible at some point this week and just start reading the life of Jesus. That would be a good place to start to get to know about God's love, right? God's love, the love that sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to die on a cross on your behalf, to die for traitors like us, 
to step into our brokenness, to experience what it's like to actually be persecuted and to die, that type of love that would hunt us down, that love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. When you put your faith authentically and genuinely in Christ, what happens to a follower of Christ is that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you. It's a new birth. That's what John 3 says. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. This is what it means to be born again. You trust in Jesus, and then every follower of Christ knows once that happens, everything about you changes. Your nature changes. The world does not understand this, but we experience it as followers of Christ. And that change is the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of you and changing everything about you. Now, who is this Holy Spirit we talk about? Who is it? What is it? Who is he? Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, hear that, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what that means. Think of a signet ring, an old king's signet ring in a letter. He put a stamp of approval on that signet ring, on that, on that envelope, and that would be the king's seal that could only be opened by the person that it was being delivered to. The Holy Spirit inside of you as a follower of Christ is the king's sign on your life, and it cannot be removed by anybody. Whether you doubt your faith or it cannot be removed by you, you don't have the strength to remove it. It's him, it's the king on your judgment day that will see that seal and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your glory I prepared for you. You can't take it. Oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, of, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us from God. The Holy Spirit is the one inside you as a follower of Christ that illuminates your understanding of the word and moves it from your head to your heart. Without the Holy Spirit, it just stays in your head. I, had, I remember in my undergrad years at Indiana University, I had an atheist, very strong evangelical atheist, right? Very strong evangelical atheist, meaning he wanted to convince me of his atheism, who was a New Testament scholar. He knew more about the Bible than I do today. The man was an encyclopedia, but he didn't have the Spirit of God inside of him. And so it remained in his head, and there was nothing in his heart about what God was doing in his life. That's the Holy Spirit's work, and you receive that by faith in Christ. It moves the knowledge of God from up here to here. And then Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit convinces us of our adoption into God's family. It's, it's the Spirit that cries out, Abba. That's like daddy, that's what that means. It cries out, I belong to the family of God. It is not every human's right to be in the family of God. Rather, we're traitors to God's presence. That's the biblical narrative. And if that's uncomfortable, I want you to actually understand what the Bible says. So at least you're disagreeing with what the scriptures say is true. Not everybody is in the family of God. Once you have faith in Christ, you're adopted into that family. And it's the spirit that cries out from within inside of you, Abba, Father. God's Spirit actually speaks this truth to you. And over time, as you walk with the Spirit, as you get to know the Spirit and what God's Spirit's doing in your life, as He works the Word of God into your heart, He sears the promises of Scripture further into your heart. They become a stronger reality in your life. It's not that they always weren't true. They were always true, but the Spirit illuminates them and strengthens them. 
Hear the words of Charles Hodge, one of the great theologians in history. The love of God does not descend upon us as dew in drops, but as a stream which spreads itself abroad through the whole soul, filling it with the consciousness of his presence and favor. And this inward persuasion that we are the objects of the love of God is not the mere result of the examination of evidence, nor is it a vain delusion, but it is produced by the Holy Spirit. God forms it in you. Fourth and final reason. We'll finish on this. Fourth reason you can be certain about your salvation, that it will not be lost. The hardest work has already been done. The hardest work has already been done. Read with me, Romans 5, 6 to 10. Here we go. For while we, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. That word is glorified. Shall we be actually glorified in heaven by his life. Now, this is the gospel. This is the good news, and let me be clear with it. The scriptures say this, he says, Christ died for us while we were weak and ungodly. He says this, he says, imagine a very just man. He goes, nobody dies for somebody just because they were a just man. You think of a just judge, right? No one's going to die for that judge and lose their life just because he was just. Now, if there might be some very good men and women in history, some people of such character and quality that you can probably find some people who would die for them. Some, some great heroes in the, in the path that someone maybe gave their life for, but nobody dies for their enemy. You know, if you're sitting over here and there's someone over there shouting insults at you, they're over here going, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't want anything to do with you, I want my own kingdom over here, I'm your enemy, I am not for you, I'm over here. This person's not going to be over here saying, I think I'll give my life for that guy, right? That's not what humans do. It wouldn't make any sense, but that's what Christ has done for us while we were enemies. That's what he says when we were the ones who were in rebellion to his kingdom. That's when he died for us. We didn't get our act together and suddenly become religious people and then come towards God. We were enemies building our own selfish kingdom on this earth, distracted from what God was doing. But in that state, Christ shed his blood for you, reconciling you, offering you the familial love of God. All the hard work of defeating Satan, sin, and death, it's already been done. It was in the past. Look, if I came home from work one day, and I went to my wife, and I said, hey, honey, I want to go on vacation with you. She'd say, that sounds great. I have a, maybe a 50-50 confidence this is going to happen, <laughs> right? Like, maybe it'll happen at some point. I don't know when. Okay, I'm glad you have that hope. But if I came my, my, home from work one day and I said, honey, pack your bags. I got plane tickets right here. My mom's watching the kids for a week. I already booked the hotel. I booked the car. I took all the time off work, and my out-of-office is on. I'm not even answering emails. Go pack your bag. The flight leaves in an hour. You'd think she'd be pretty certain we're getting on that plane, wouldn't you? 
She'd be ready to go. All the hard work's already been done. All we ought to do is get on the plane. You think Jesus went through all the work on the cross to die on your behalf, shedding his blood, defeating Satan on the cross so that he wouldn't open the door for you in heaven? The hard work's already been done. He's already done it all for you on the cross, and he's secured it fully. This is why you can be certain, says Scripture, everything that has to happen for you to have full relationship with God, to experience the love of him now and in eternity, what you were made for, all the hard work's been done. Amen? It was done fully on the cross. You started to clap on that. Thank you. He's already done it all. Now, what do we do with this? See, let's go back for just a moment. Read me verse 11. Let's close on this. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I started by saying this illustration. If I knew gold was going up 300%, I'd make an investment. If you're certain about what's going to happen, you make an investment today. Followers of Christ, you know what is going to happen. You can live with a certainty of it if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's been fully purchased. Your salvation is yours. You're fully known, fully loved. You have to bring a sense of rejoicing with you into this world. You know, I preached this sermon not too long ago about what it is to rejoice in Jesus Christ. There ought to be a mark on a follower of Christ that everything I just said is true. Otherwise, I'm not sure if you really believe it's true. There ought to be not a dualism of a private Christian life and then like a public, I'm just like everybody else life. What is that? that that's nothing. That's not faith. That's something, but I don't know what it is. God's called you to live with such a rejoicing over what God's done in your life that you walk into every aspect of life and the world sees you as almost peculiar. They look in you on your life as a follower of Christ and they see you suffering and they say, you handle that differently. Because if, if I was there, I wouldn't be rejoicing. But then you open Scripture, you open James 1, rejoice in your suffering. You open up Romans 5, rejoice in your suffering. And you say, I want to introduce you to Christ. Followers of Christ can have a certainty about their life and they bring that with them into every aspect of their life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for Romans and your word that's spoken to us, the clarity of our salvation. Father, I pray for us as we reflect on this, that this would be more than just words. I pray whatever is true that has been shared today, that you would sear this on our hearts. For those in this room that are not yet followers of Christ and where this sounds foolish perhaps, I pray that you would do a supernatural Holy Spirit work, God, that only you can do. I can't convince hearts, but you can. That's the business you're in. And so, Jesus, I pray for those in this room that this morning need to have an encounter with the living God, that you would have that encounter. Sensitize hearts that are hard, Father, I pray. May there be an actual receipt of Christ, a receiving of the King this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.